This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. When you're lost in the rain in Juarez and it's Easter time too, and your gravity fails and negativity don't pull you through, don't put on any airs when you're down on Rue Morgue Avenue. They got some hungry women there and they really make a mess out of you. This is Pod Dylan that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues, the penultimate track, from, of course, 1965's Highway 61 Revisited, is director Alan Arkish. Hi, Alan. Hi, how are you? I am doing great. I am so honored to have you on the show. You and I have uh, podcasted once before. You were on my show, yeah. Fade Out, where we talked about the career of Sidney Lumet, and that was just such a marvelous conversation. I have been right. watching your stuff ever since, well, I don't want to say since I was a kid, make you feel old, but that it, it, that's, that's the <laughs> truth of it. And, and you know, you were a... you. A Bob Dylan fan for a long time. Uh, that's right. something that I learned from watching your films. And we'll get to that in a moment. But of course, you've also done trailers from hell commentaries on some of Bob Dylan's stuff. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. But so before we get to the song, like I just mentioned, like let's start at the beginning. How did you become a fan of Bob in the first place? Okay. So do you offhand know what year? It must have been 62 or 3 that Blowing in the Wind was a hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary. 63. 63. So that was my introduction to Bob Dylan. So I was 15 years old. I, I distinctly remember it from that summer, being in summer camp and hearing it and really, really liking the words, you know. And um, I was developing somewhat of a social consciousness you know, and so that um, that song really rang something for me. And I met a bunch of people or I was starting to become friends with a bunch of guys and they had older brothers. And that's how we put to, I put together that it was Bob Dylan, who he was. A couple of them had a Dylan records. And so I became fascinated by it. But. I think the first Dylan record that I bought was The Times They Are A-Changing. And I bought it right after I bought Meet the Beatles. I don't know if that, you know, works out time-wise, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what it was. And then a friend of mine had Free Wheelin' and Free Wheelin's cover just really for, uh, you know, the romanticism of that cover and those songs. So I would play um, Times Are a Changer for Righteous Indignation <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Free Wheeling for its um, emo qualities, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we used to go around, instead of saying, see you tomorrow, whatever, we'd say fairly well, you know, oh. just like it's in the song and so forth. So that was my high school fascination with Dylan and um, really um, loving the music. And then uh, 
I read that he was going to be at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium to play. I had not seen him. And I don't think I actually had seen a rock and roll concert in the sense I had seen these Murray the K shows where people would lip sync along, you know. And um, so we got tickets to see Dylan at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. And I think that's August of 65. Wow. And um, we spent $5 for a ticket and thought for that money, <laughs> we're going to be sitting on the stage. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And uh, so we all, it was four of us, and we, we took the subway, and we get there, and um, we're in the bleachers, you know, of Forest <laughs> Hills. And there was two influences on me musically. Now, remember, this is before there was any rock press. So there was no such thing as rock press. I don't think newspapers wrote any reviews that I remember of Bob Dylan, although that's not true because that's how Dylan got reviewed. Uh, uh, and he got his Columbia contract, that writer. Right. Robert uh, Shelton, I believe, is the one that really put him on the map or helped put him yeah. on the map. So on, I listened to Murray the K, who was the local rock and roll DJ a lot, you know, and he was pretty cool. And, um, he followed as music grew. So um, he played doo-wop music. Then he played California Beach Boys. And then he was the fifth Beatle. So he was always ahead of the curve on that. So I listened to him a lot. And I also listened to this folk show called the Jerry White Folk Show, which was on Tuesday nights, I think. Uh, and uh, in the summer... They broadcast live from Palisades Amusement Park. And I lived about two miles or a mile and a half from Palisades Amusement Park. So we would walk there or hitchhike there. Now, Palisades Amusement Park was a blue-collar amusement park uh, on the top uh, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, on the top of the Palisades. And it had a wooden roller coaster and a huge saltwater pool. And they do like a Murray the Casio or those kind of things on Saturdays with lip syncing. And Jerry White was live on Tuesday nights at like eight o'clock or so. And uh, it cost a quarter to get in unless you had a coupon from a Superman comic. Oh, and I remember those. Yeah. Yes. That's the place. And there's a song called Down at Palisades Park by Freddie Cannon, which the Ramones covered. Uh, and it was, so then it was 15 cents. And so we saw Jerry would be there. And here's who we saw there. Richie Havens, mm -hmm. Dave Van Ronk, the Simon sisters, which was Carly Simon and her sister, um, Jesse Colin Young, who the second time he played there, he brought an amplifier and we were all shocked. Uh, <laughs> and because he, he became the Youngbloods. Um, Patrick Sky, whoever was in the West Village folk scene, probably picked up 30, 40, 50 bucks. They'd all get in the car, come out and play at Palisades. And so we go to see um, Bob Dylan and the intro to Bob Dylan is Jerry White, you know. And so all is right with the world. And <laughs> he does his intro and Dylan plays. And, I mean, this 
this is the second concert. It's the first concert after Dylan went electric at Newport. Wow. Right? (laughs) I don't think we knew. No, we did not know that he had played electric instruments. There would be no way to know. You know, because there was no place that would write about it yet. It would, might be in a folk magazine, but we're only talking two weeks earlier. Uh, and so he played it, and there was not a great reaction to Desolation Row, and I don't know why. So that was the material he was playing, you know. And um, I think people were restless and upset that he wasn't playing more of the protest music. So we were, you know, folk music and the purest of folk music and the distance that Bob Dylan took us from how folk music originally was presented and played was enormous and happened quicker. Remember the folk music, there was no new songs. They all came out of that book of folk music and it was okay to change the lyrics and so forth and adjust them. But it wasn't like there was people writing a lot of folk songs. Right. And so right. when he started doing that and writing protest songs, it was okay. But when he sang Mr. Tambourine Man and so forth in the last album that was out before that concert was bringing it all back, Bring it all home. back home. Right. It was not sitting well with people that he was veering away from his old stuff, that constant thing. And he was going into areas which had never been done with folk music. I mean, another side of Bob Dylan was treated with mixed results because it was love songs and the imagery. So, but it went okay for the first half. And then he said, I'll be right back. And, uh, I guess none of us really noticed that there was amplifiers on the stage. <laughs> and who comes out? They come out and they start to plug in these amps. And who comes out in a bright red suit to introduce them is Murray the K. And Murray had this Murray language, Mia Surrey. And he goes, hey, everybody, we've got the hippest man in the world. And he's going <laughs> to he's going to play. He's going to rock you. Be a zombie, be a zillion. And it's like, what? And they launch into Maggie's farm, I think. <laughs> I I'm guessing because it was that. And they played, and the audience got really upset. And there was immediate reaction. And there was booing. And during an electric version of Ain't Me, Babe, during the no, 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 the members of the audience were shouting, no, no, no. And people were trying to run and get on the stage and stop him. I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, so it was, um, it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to say that me and my friends, we were all about to enter our senior year of high school, were confused by the event. You know, and this reaction, I, we've never been, this is my first electric rock concert. How many could they have, there have been before this, you know, mm-hmm. unless Chuck Berry or something. And uh, it was, the reaction was, was everywhere around you. And then at a certain point, Dylan says, this song is for all of you out there who are booing. I don't know if he said booing, but it was clear for the people who didn't like what was going on. 
and he plays something's happening here and you don't know what it is, Mr. Jones. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there with my friends and we're fucking <laughs> the song lyrics. And he said, you've been with all the professors and they all like your looks. You know, with that chorus and lawyers or something. Uh, you've been through all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. You're very well read. It's well known, which was so specifically aimed at that audience of college kids. My friend Dennis turned to me and said, look me in the eye and said, uh-oh, he totally nailed us. Right? <laughs> I, I love that he knew it in the moment. <laughs> in that moment. And then... Uh, the booing got bigger, and then he he ended the concert with like a Rolling Stone, which I think was just starting to get on the radio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, the concert's over, and also I had we had bought our first beers. You know, we didn't have ID, but we had bought beer, and now we get to the George Washington Bridge. And I lived in Fort. We live in Fort Lee, and we have to get across the bridge by bus and we don't have enough money to take the bus. And so we walked across the bridge and we all remember on that walk, we all felt we had seen something momentous. We had seen something rare. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we get to the middle of the bridge and we're all looking around and one of us, my friend Susan said, how much money we got? And we look again, and we have like three dimes. She says, give me the dimes. All right, everybody, make a wish. And she throws the dimes off the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> and you can see them tumble down, and we made a wish. And it was a lot like Bob Dylan's dream, if I could be with those friends again, you know? <laughs> and so that was the night. That's Your life is such a movie, Alan. I mean, that's like a movie scene, that, what you just described. <laughs> I know how to, how to tell a story. I mean, that's just unbelievable. So, okay, I have the set list for that night in front of me. Do? I, I, yes, because it's on BobDylan.com. Forest, Forest Hills Tennis Stadium, August 28th, 1965. And for, I mean, you know, we're recording this the end of August, so we are just one day shy of that. So that was 58 years ago, right? Yeah, 58 years ago, uh, 1965. Yeah. So. This was the set list. This is what you heard that night. Okay. She belongs. She, she belongs to me. To Got Ramona. Every- Gates August. of Eden. Love minus zero. No limit. Desolation row. It's over now, baby. It's all over now, baby blue. Mr. Tambourine man. Tombstone blues. I don't believe you. She acts like we never have met from a Buick six. Just like Tom Thumbs blues. Maggie's farm. It ain't me, babe. Ballad of a thin man and like a rolling stone. I mean, that's a set list for the ages, you know, and <laughs> to think that there were a lot of people that left that night not satisfied with what they just heard. Out where the split was into electric. Okay. Do you, what was the song after Desolation Row? Uh, that's, it's all over now, Baby Blue. I'm going to bet that uh, Tambourine Man was probably the last acoustic one. And then he comes out in those Tombstone Blues. Cause yeah. I can't, I can't imagine Tombstone Blues was done by himself yeah. acoustically. And that makes sense. Wow. What a set list. <laughs> oh, and, 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 and the band. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie Robertson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Cooper. 
was Levon Helm the drummer that night? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. that I don't know. I know that he set out. So there were some changes there because they were a little. Uh-huh. The, the lineups all changed a little bit. So, so yeah. I mean, but your reaction was, did what did you think of it? Did you like it, did, or were you as bewildered as your friends? Like I don't know and what they- we just heard along by all these people booing so there was a sense of confusion mm-hmm. you know and we all took music very very seriously and Dylan was taken the most serious of all I mean when Dylan had a new record well I remember when John Wesley Harden came out right okay and it, it's like cryptic tales you know cryptic stories and every night there was a, a WBAI, which was listener-sponsored radio in New York area. And it was what college kids listened to. There was an all-night show with Bob Fass, and people would call in, and we'd discuss endlessly the meaning of each of these songs. You know, it was part and parcel, what do these songs mean? Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of this was, I'm going to say maybe two, three months later, I am in this class, world history class. Uh, and on a Sunday, I open up the New York Times, which I read, and there's a full page ad against the war in Vietnam, which is something I hadn't really considered, you know. And I look who's on the, took out the ad, and it's, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, all those people. And they're against the war in Vietnam. You know, it wasn't something I had thought about. Mm-hmm. And it was before the Tet Offensive and all this. And it just really rocked me. And sometime right around then, it says this is the power of what the music could do then. Okay. I'm in history class, and my history teacher, his name is, is let's leave his name out, with Mr. <laughs> Kelly, and he is an ex-Marine, and he's also the basketball coach. And we had a great basketball team, and we had a bunch of players in the class, and he says, I think we should have a class debate about Vietnam. Wow. You know, he was pretty clear how much he hated the people against the war in Vietnam. And so... Who wants to be for the war in Vietnam? Raise your hands, you know. And most of the class, I would say almost everyone, stuck their hands up, especially the guys on the basketball team. Right. You know? And then he said, Who's like, who wants to take the side against the war? And I remember thinking of that ad and thinking of all the Dylan songs that were, you know, times you are changing and all of that. And I stuck my hand up, and he looked at me and goes, oh, Arkish, figures. <laughs> <laughs> What's, I mean, how did that go? How did that, how did that debate go? Okay, so you know what's going on in the, in the South right now with libraries not having certain books? Yeah. That's yeah. the way it was at Fort Lee High School, Okay. I don't think there was one book by an African-American in the library. I think there might have been two books by women, okay? Mm. And many of the books that I would try to take out, I was told were banned, you know? And I'm talking about Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Catcher in the Rye, all of that. 
So I go to the school library and um, uh, they don't have, they have nothing on Vietnam specifically. They just have the magazines that were coming out then. And I had previously been going into the Greenwich Village to buy the books that I couldn't get in the library, like Saul Bellows Herzog and, you know, the Naked and the Dead. So I go to this bookstore in Greenwich Village and say, do you have anything about Vietnam? You know, expecting the same kind of, and they have a whole section about it. <laughs> and so I asked and got information and got the first time I ever bought the Village Voice and the Realist by Paul Krasner's little newspaper, uh, Jerry Rubin and all those people were in all the time and studied up on Vietnam and it was nothing like what I knew. Mm -hmm. And when the debate starts, it's like kind of me against the football team, uh, the basketball team and those people. And all they had done is read time in Newsweek, mm -hmm. the domino theory and all this stuff. And because no one else wanted to be my team, I kind of had, I think, two cheerleaders and, you know, people who were not that focused on it. So <laughs> I can't and when I started explaining that this was not the first time that the French had taken it over and so forth and um, talked about the assassinations in Vietnam and I started talking about for the wrap up, I started talking about napalm, you know, and what we were doing to the people there and how they didn't want us there. It's their country, you know, and Mr. Kelly started asking me questions. He got really pissed. And then the whole class was supposed to vote who won the debate. And I clearly won, but no one was going to go against him. Oh, yeah, they voted. I won. And then <laughs> I remember looking over at Coach Kelly, and he looked at me like a sniper. <laughs> <laughs> and... Oh, here's the topper. Here's the Dylan tie-in. Oh, my God. I almost forgot this. So the, the best player on the high school team's name was Bob Hutton. He was a great player. And Bob and I were friends. And Bob asked me about Bob Dylan because he had heard, you know, about Bob Dylan. And he bought himself the 45 of Positively 4th Street. Mm. And... You've got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. And he's listening to it. And I said, oh, what'd you think? He says, it's just like me and Coach Kelly. It's like the story of me and Coach Kelly. He says he wants to be my friend. And he played it for Coach Kelly. And Coach Kelly knew exactly the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Dylan was all inextricably tied into my life at that point. You know, he's the most important person Art in my life as far as an artist and following a career, you know, right. and, and having the music come out and in real time learning to appreciate it. You know, I mean, we, we all have artists that we love who are passed away, you know, and we have artists that we like and love that are younger, still developing. But there are only like two artists that I feel like I've been there from the beginning all the way through, you know, and that would be Dylan and Scorsese. Mm. Oh. <laughs> a hell of a pair. Uh, I mean, the, sometimes when I ask people, 
you know, how they became a fan. And then they'll say, oh, they dipped out of it for a while, especially if they're, they've been fans for a long time. And then they come back because Bob just keeps going, you know, so you can dip out of it for a while. And then you go, oh, what other tracks? What's this? And then you come back, you know, you're back out of it again. Now, you know, you're, you go after high school, you know, you go off and have your career and you start working for the great Roger Corman and you're doing all, and you start directing your own movies. And obviously Bob is still on your mind because, you know, uh, it, he shows up in rock and roll high school, the classic rock and roll. PJ souls has got a copy of highway 61. They ban and burn. Right. Right. So, I mean, I remember that I remember at a young age seeing that movie and I was a Dylan fan and I was like, Oh geez. Oh. Now, you know, uh, but the other one, which I, I have got to point out because I've been ever since I discovered this, 30 years ago when I worked at a video store, I've been dying to ask you about this. You know, a lot of directors put Bob Dylan's work, if they can afford it, in the, in the soundtrack to yeah. their movies, or they put, you know, an artifact of Bob's or somewhere. But only you, as far as I know, would go so far as to recreate a Bob Dylan cover and, you know, as a set in one of your movies and have Lou Reed yeah. playing a version of bob dylan and you sit him in this album cover and i gotta tell you i i you know i've told you this off air i remember renting this the film we're talking about everybody's called get crazy it's from 1983 it's a tribute to your time at the Fillmore east i don't know why i'm saying you you describe what your film is about but i remember watching that movie and just not knowing what i was about to get i had seen rock and roll high school i had some idea of maybe because i knew who you were but i'm watching this movie and then all of a sudden they call this reclusive folk singer named Auden and it's Lou Reed. And I'm like, wow. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I recognize this. And it's Lou Reed straight up sitting in the cover to break, bring it all back home. I mean, what, how did that come about? Okay. Well, you're the perfect person to hear this then. Okay. So I am, when I'm in college, I don't think Nashville skyline had happened yet. So I still think we're in uh, John Wesley Harding, but right, Dylan is right. not touring. Right. Okay. And uh, I'm at the Fillmore East all the time. And I believe at that point that we knew that Dylan lived on in the West village, but, and he would come to the Fillmore to see bands. And it was always like top secret, top secret. Don't say a word that Dylan's coming, that kind of thing, you know. And I definitely remember him coming to see Mad Dogs and Englishmen because Leon Russell uh, then saluted him from the stage. And he came to see Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And that was the night of the... Um, uh, well-known fistfight among Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young because... Steve Stills, instead of playing two songs, played for 40 minutes, you know. <laughs> and um, so that would happen. And every time that Dylan came to the Fillmore, we were we got him a, a seat in the sound booth. And we didn't say anything about it, okay? So the dead are playing there, and he's come to see the dead, and the Beach Boys go up on the stage, Okay, and they're jamming, and then it comes across on the headphones that Dylan might go up on the stage and play. Oh my! Now, when you appeared at the Fillmore, 
your um as you went on the stage your name went up on the screen so we had a collection of the slides and when it appeared and hoping because we still i used to remember watching bob walker cross the we made up a dylan slide just hoping and i put the dylan slide in the projector so that if he walked on the stage at the end of the beach boys and we were told he's he's gonna uh, it's gonna happen and so forth and then i made one of the stupidest mistakes of my life <laughs> as the beach boys finished i thought i didn't remember that the beach boys slide was not in there and i raised it up and on comes bob Dylan. Oh, no. <laughs> And the place goes crazy, and the next thing I see is Dylan walking across the stage, going out the back door. <laughs> no, there is Bill Graham, and it's like you come here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got a, I got an earful of Bill Graham, but nonetheless, Bill still let me use the theater for my student film. Okay, okay. so. <laughs> had a bunch of film students at the film Maurice working on the stage group. That was Jonathan Kaplan who went on to be a director and this guy, Daniel Patashu, a writer. And we always talked about doing a movie about our experiences there. And that's what became um, Get Crazy. So around 19... 81 danny and i start working on it and we came up with this dylan character who has not been on stage because that's what it was right and we of course exaggerated it and we didn't in the early scripts it said dylan you know Mm. and we couldn't it was obviously we're not gonna we found you know it's not gonna happen with dylan so i'm thinking who has that kind of gravitas you know and (laughs) The thing about it is that Get Crazy to me is rock criticism in a movie. Okay. There's a lot of stuff in there. If you follow rock and roll, that is uh, about the history of rock. That's why every band plays the same Muddy Waters song and, you know, all that kind of stuff that's in the movie. And the history of girl groups is in there in one band. And so I figured, let's try Lou Reed, you know. And we call, we send them the script and they're interested. And we flew to New York to do some casting. And, uh, we had lunch with Lou Reed. And at that time he was married to Sylvia Morales. And we asked him what he thinks. And he said it was really interesting and so forth. And then I had to say something. And rather than just merely say something about his music. Oh, I think I also mentioned that we'd used rock and roll in uh, in rock and roll high school. And how, you know, Velvet Underground and all this. I said, but the thing about you that really most gratifies me is that you keep challenging yourself and you keep making better records. And I want to tell you that the Blue Mask which was his latest record, is really mature, profound piece of work, you know? And because I know you've always talked about yourself in more as a novelist than a rock and roll star. And I, you know, it carries the gravitas of, of, you know, last exit to Brooklyn and all of this stuff. And 
that won him over. I could see him go, okay, this guy's serious. You know? <laughs> guy said, because your rec- recreation of what it's like to be mugged in New York City and the day that John Kennedy died and so forth. And so he says, yes. And we come back and it's like, wow, we got Lou Reed. And from there, we flew to Chicago. And in the airport of Chicago, we have another meeting with Muddy Waters. Wow. <laughs> wow. We're sitting there, you know, between points waiting for him. And this guy in these acrylic pants and a Hawaiian shirt coming towards us with a younger woman with him. That turns out to be his daughter. But and it's like people don't know who he is, but they know he's something. Right. He's like yeah. different. <laughs> A regular person doesn't look like this. He's the hoochie-coochie. Right. <laughs> and he said yes also, but then he had to bow out because he had heart trouble. Okay. So we're about a week or two before shooting starts. And I, because we got, because we couldn't get Dylan, we did the joke about the Dylan cover. So you follow that logic. That was me and Danny having fun with it, you know, and we thought it'd be great intro yeah oh i i like i said i rem- i can literally remember the i was i was staying up all night you know it was in between my years in art school and so i'm i'm working at this video store and i'm staying up all night and i'm watching this and i'm just like what the and it just felt like such a private jo- i mean this is in 92 this would have been so this is you know all pre internet i have nobody to share this with you know right. I, I don't have any dylan I had one friend that was a Dylan fan, but it wasn't like I could text him. So it was in the middle that I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. And so when you put that gag in the movie, like, what did you do? Do you just hand the record to your set designer and say, build this? Or do you have to get, like, how does that even come about? Well, we thought to do it. So we hand the record to the art department and she's got to build the set. And I say, it's only going to be this angle. And There is a thing in filmmaking called mise-en-scene. Mm-hmm. And it's a French term, and it means put the scene, where you put the scene. And that means how you dress the set, what the camera angle is, makes the written word more powerful and makes it a movie. So this was, if I may say so, one of my best examples ever <laughs> I've done of mise-en-scene. <laughs> Because I am drawing a direct line to those who know what's going on and saying Auden, hence W.H. Auden, mm-hmm. and Dylan, Dylan Thomas, are connected, you know, and that's why we did it. And so, but the phone rings two weeks before shooting, and it's, I don't know who it is. It's early in the morning. My wife picks it up, and she says, to, covers her hand, and she goes, honey, it's Lou Reed. <laughs> he says, and he sounds really pissed. Mm-hmm. So I take the phone. He had done the classic mistake that um, actors do, and he's not even professional. He had only read his dialogue. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> not read descriptions. And when he read that, he was really pissed off and I explained to him the connection. And there was a couple of sentences in there about him being covered in cobwebs because right. he had not left the apartment. Right. And he said, I'm not doing the cobwebs. And it basically told us we had two days to shoot him and that was it. 
And so that he came out to LA and um, I really wanted to make sure he and I got along, you know? And so I, I took my boom box out of my office and put it in his trailer and knowing about him from interviews, I made a mixtape for him of the kind of jazz he had mentioned in interviews that he liked. And so I give him the tape and everything, and he's looking, doing the total Louie, looking, uh, that one's not that good. Oh, this is good. And he's basically reviewing the tape. And Sylvia stops and goes, Lou, he spent two hours making a <laughs> tape for you, and you're saying you should have picked the third cut on the Ornan Coleman record? <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. <laughs> so, did you there's, more, there's more Lou Reed stuff on the get crazy extras mm, yes oh i've seen it and, and yeah. again for anyone who hasn't seen the movie go check it out you can get it there's a wonderful blu-ray of it uh the the final scene with lou just playing a song is one of the like i would put like my top 10 favorite endings to a movie ever oh. just the way it you know you have all the movie you know as it befits the title is craziness for 92 minutes it's like a mad magazine come to life of just things in the corner and this gag over here. And Oh, look, there's four people doing this and all of this stuff. And then it just stops with this marvelous solo Lou Reed performance. And you just put the camera on him and there's one person watching him. And it's, it's really beautiful. It's really touching and heartfelt. Not the whole movie is that way, but it's after all of this craziness, you have this, you just kind of distill it down. And it's, it's wonderful to see Lou Reed just sit there and play this, my little sister song. It's cool. Find the scene stories, which are not going to tell everyone everything. This, you know, when we're talking about Dylan, it's in the extras. We did a separate film of the extras. And if you go to my YouTube channel, there's a whole other extra that we, we didn't want to get into a, a rights problem. That is everybody in the movie who's Malcolm McDowell and Danny Stern talking about their first rock and roll concert and what they thought when they first saw the Beatles and what their favorite records are. And Howard Kalen is a scream in it. And um, so we, there's a lot more stuff in there. All right. Well, everybody check that out. Like you said, it's, if you haven't seen get crazy, give it a view. It is, it's, it's really, a really fun movie. And just as a Dylan fan, you will just so appreciate. Oh, by the way, did you have to like, audition a bunch of women to be Sally Grossman or is it just somebody you knew that look ah that's close enough because she doesn't ever say anything someone from casting gave us pictures of extras you know that's kind of how we do it you know (laughs) can you hold a cigarette in a kind of way uh good enough yeah like you know but in on my YouTube page there's a lot of my rock videos and a lot of my rock criticism that I've done you know there's a thing about my 10 favorite albums and there's every single trailer from hell that I've done. So oh, love them. I, I, I'm just such a mega fan of trailers. I'm, I, I literally check it, the YouTube, the, the show's YouTube channel. I think every third day to see if you guys have posted a new one. And if you have, I watch it immediately. It's, it's just such a, I'm such a nerd for these things. So, well, rock, it, crit, rock, crit. Joe's been very generous and allowing me to go way off topic and you know you've seen my 15 minute review yep. of, of no direction home yep. yeah 
<laughs> they look little film classes. Like I said, yeah. I mean, for, again, for anyone who's not doesn't familiar with Trailers from Hell, it's a website where all these esteemed people from the world of cinema, directors, uh, uh, writers, producers, all these different people do commentary tracks over trailers to a particular movie. And it's generally most people, the length of the video is the length of the trailer. So it's, if it's you know, the trailer's two minutes, the, the, the video's two minutes. But Alan's are <laughs> like, you queue up the No Direction Home trailer, which we all know is like about a minute 45. But the video from Alan is like 11 minutes. And he's like, what? okay. And it's, so there's this 10 minutes of preamble setting the stage and you're, you're pulling out your Blu-rays and your DVDs from your collection. And then you get to the trailer. Like I said, it's, they're like little film schools. They're really, they're, they're, yeah, I did another one like that. Obviously a big one like that for, um, uh, the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, movie and so forth. Yeah. So. Oh, just, I love it. So I'll go. Okay. We, we I got to get to get just like Thompson's blues. Cause I could be talking Guitar- to you about movies yeah. all day. So, you know, we, we kind of went over what songs you wanted to talk about. And obviously there was like a million to pick from. And we, you know, I was like, just, we'll just kind of find one to hang our hat on through this, through this show. So I am curious as to why of all the songs to pick from, cause they said you could do anything from the catalog. Why this one? Now I will, I, my personal history with this song is this is my favorite track off of Highway 61. I, I would argue like Rolling Stone is probably his greatest song. Maybe if you want to, you know, rank them like that. Desolation Row is probably a greater achievement in songcraft. But right. if, if if someone said what's your personal favorite, it's this one. It, I and I don't even exactly know why, but it's always been sort of my. And I always feel weird saying really over like a Rolling Stone, but yeah, it kind of is. So why did you want to talk about this? One? Um, because okay, so the song comes out in '65. Um. And I was obviously had this album and I moved out after the film war and after driving a cab for a year and wow. all this stuff, I moved out to Los Angeles with $400. So now we're at 1973 <laughs> and I was no future. You know, you didn't go to film school and work on movies. That was not film schools. There were only three when I went to film school mm-hmm. and there were, you know, so easy rider would just come out. So the door was open a crack and one of my friends uh, got a job working for Roger Corman, directing a nurse's movie. And then the next friend <laughs> came out and they did a teacher's movie. And then I came out and lived on their floor, of their garage of their ap- uh, apartment building and lived in the garage and so forth and got a job in the editing room of Roger Corman. And Roger had just started his company. So he was churning out movies like Big Bad Mama, Crazy Mama, um, uh, Caged Heat, all this kind of stuff, Eat My Dust. And we were cutting the trailers for them and for all the foreign films now. So all of a sudden, a confluence of events had happened. There was a generation who now grew up on Roger Corman movies and we understood his movies and we also had gone to film school. So if he tells us he's just bought Fellini's Amarcord, we are beyond ourselves that we're going to get to cut the trailer. Right. And Roger picked up on this 
and the company was growing. And so we spent all our time editing in this with the goal of getting to direct. So at the same time, I am getting, this is going on, Jonathan Demi is directing two or three movies for Roger, Ron Howard, David Cronenberg, you know, Joe Dante and so forth. And I want to make a high school musical <laughs> based on my fantasies in high school, you know, and my feeling about it. And it's pretty rocky to get it to the point that I wanted it to be, to be rock and roll high school. Now, as um, a lot of stuff. Oh, and by the way, this just came out. It's called I Want You Around, The Ramones and the Making of Rock and Roll High School. Oh, and cool. It'll be out. Actually, I feel like we're doing a talk show here. It'll be in the stores <laughs> next weekend. <laughs> Did you bring a clip, Alan? <laughs> and it tells you everything that happened behind the scenes. And if even if you're if you're interested in how an indie film got made in the seventies, it's all in there. Oh, so fantastic! I am desperately trying to make this movie, and struggling and working my butt off, and I am collecting records. You know, that's my life, and a feeling at a certain point in around February or March of 78. We didn't start prep. We didn't start shooting Rock and Roll High School to, until November of 78. So we are on the cusp of can we take it that next step? Can we get the movie made that we want? I'm working on a terrible um, science, fic science fiction samurai biker movie called Death Sport, which I am saving, and a feeling of despair comes over me and it's living in me. And what I was doing then was making a lot of cassette mixes that are based on my emotions. Okay. And based on a year. And so I am playing, I want to do one about despair. Okay. And I start out the mix with there's too much on my mind by the kinks. And I'm thinking, what could fall? And I think, oh, wait a minute, if you're lost in the rain in Juarez, and I put that on. Here's the. Here's oh, the God, you still have it? Yes, I do. Wow. If you're interested, I can send you a um, uh, a, a copy of it that's digital. I've oh, of course. Are you kidding? <laughs> hundred of I made up. <laughs> and I put on that song, and I remember the piano intro hanging in the air and it was as if I'd never heard it before hmm. and it so perfectly matched the kink song hmm. and so perfectly matched my emotion that forever since that day even after knowing that song as well as I did it for 10 years it it went it it went towards the top of my list for certain kind of music. So that is why when you asked me, I remembered that evening of putting of putting that mix together and that song reverberating because I've always believed that the greater the art, the more it changes with time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you grow and you change and a great piece of art will re will inform itself to you over and over again. So I was thinking of that and I, you know, I, 
I knew I wanted to somehow fit in the story of, of Dylan Electric, you know, but I thought, you know, it just so captured an emotion. So the mix is this for you real fanatics. Okay. So it opens, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Too Much on My Mind by The Kinks, Tom Thumbs Blues by Dylan, Black Diamond Bay by Dylan, Cowgirl in the Sand by Neil Young, Saddle Up the Palomino by Neil Young, Tough Mama, Baby Blue, Van Morrison singing Crazy Face, Memphis Blues again by Dylan, in the best best transition goes into Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops. That is, in essence, why I chose the song, because it was like I'd never heard it before. Now, was this mixtape just for you to listen to, or did you play it for other people? Uh, It was just for me, you know. But what was happening was that everyone who heard my mixes wanted copies, so I had to buy (laughs) a cassette player and make (laughs) copies of these things. (laughs) A lot of men. I started doing this thing where every year on my birthday – I do a diary mix of the music that meant the most to me. And that part is really eclectic and trying to make it have the ins and outs to make sense to and flow musically. It's also, I have made 400 movies and TV shows. Okay. I have received more notes about what I do than any human being should. Okay. <laughs> One of the reasons I stopped directing, I just couldn't take the notes anymore. Oh, man. You know, and look, I did a lot of stuff that I am proud of and is really close to what I wanted to do. And I've done stuff that's exactly what I want to. And I've done stuff that was ruined. These mixes, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. Right. <laughs> Pure expression. If if I want to play, uh, do a mix called Louder Than Any Table Saw, <laughs> just guitar meltdown music, you know. <laughs> I, okay, you're, you're, you're referring to notes makes me think of something Dylan related, and I don't want to get too far off of just like Tom Thumbs Blues, but I will, I will mention it. And it's, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Uh, people that are listening certainly know it. So uh, there's this story about when he's recording uh, time out of mind right right and he does highlands and if you've heard this story please stop me and i'll take i'll take it out of the show but he he re- he records highlands right and it's 17 minutes yeah and he records highlands and supposedly while he's in the studio some record flunky from i guess columbia goes up to him and says do you have a short version of that oh and bob's answer was that is the short version which is actually perfect answer but imagine Bob Dylan in 1997, and you're giving him notes, basically, about his songs. Uh, it's like the famous John Ford story. John Ford's shooting this Western for Fox, okay? Great John Ford. And he's fallen behind, you know, what their schedule should be. And they decide to send the son, who's learning to be a producer of the head of Fox, so I think it's Daryl Zanuck's son, oh, out to Monument Valley to ask him to speed it up or whatever, you know? <laughs> Did he so draw the short straw? I mean, good Lord. Yes, you know, so Richard Zanuck shows up on the set. Now, John Ford is like 50 or 60. And terrifying, yeah. completely terrifying. 
And he says, hey, how are you? And how's your dad? And so forth. And he says, uh, I came here to, to ask you um, to tell you that according to our figures and everything, you're about eight pages behind. And he goes, what do you mean? He says, according to the schedule, you should be eight pages further on. And he turns to script supervisors, give me a script, give me a script. And they give him a script, and he rips out eight pages. He gives it to the kid. Give these to your father. Tell him we're back on schedule. <laughs> I just, I that's can't. Uh, <laughs> I just, I said, I just can't wrap my head around the idea of, yeah. you know, Bob Dylan at that stage of his career. And, and, you know, he's Bob Dylan in 1997, and you're, you're giving him notes about what song he should be doing. I'm I mean, it's just crazy. Time out of mind. There's trying to get to heaven. Mm-hmm. And then there's another song about death. Um, <laughs> All of them, basically. <laughs> Not dark yet, probably. Is that the one you're thinking of? Uh, it's trying to get them before they close the door. Oh, it's getting dark. Yeah. Yeah. Not dark yet. Yeah, that's it. Yep. And I'm doing Crossing Jordan, which was an NBC show. All right. I mean, end every episode with a, a song or a piece of music that summed up the drama. And we were doing this one where the main characters are at a gray, uh, at a cemetery looking at the grave of the mother. And we had, we thought this Peter Gabriel song, you know, and um, we didn't get it. So now we're trying to look for another song. And I suggest not dark yet. You know, the Dylan song. Mm-hmm. And our music supervisor looks at me from NBC like, you're never going to get that. <laughs> I said, Dylan is so hard. And so we call up and the, and Dylan's person says, you know, I think he's going to say yes. Because in spite of the fact that that album is a success, no one has ever licensed the song from that record. Wow. And we put it in, and Dylan sees it afterwards, and he word gets back any song we ever want to use, except you can't use "Blowing in the Wind." There are some of those he will let us have. Wow! But here's the topper. So we are always at war with NBC over our songs. They only want us to use new songs, right? And if we use the song ironically, they never got it. Word gets to the. Someone calls up the music supervisor at NBC and they say, we represent Madonna. And Madonna really likes Crossing Jordan and the way they use the songs. Wow. So she's perfectly willing to let you have a Madonna song if the same people use it. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know. have any piece of music we want. So the hippest soundtrack on television is Crossing Jordan. Like <laughs> where instead of buying the songs, we chose the songs to record. And that album was produced by T Bone Burnett. Wow. So if you can find the soundtrack album, it's got great stuff. And it's got um um anyway, it's got a song from Blood on the Tracks and it's done by Emmy Lou Harris. Oh my goodness. Wow. That sounds amazing. Jeez, yeah, really good. It's really good. <laughs> so, well, okay, wow. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, I didn't get. I didn't mean to get us off of, of just like Tom Thumbs Blue. So, you said you put it. You put it. It's the second track. 
right? On this mixtape that you make. Yeah. And one of the things I love about this song is that it, it's this wonderful tension of that the lyrics are so, as you mentioned, like they're so downbeat and they're full of ennui of like desperation and just somebody at their rope, you know, kind of at the end of their rope. And yet the music, that piano that comes in is so bright and carries you forward and you find yourself singing along with it all the time, even though it's such a, you know, the goddess of gloom, you know, it's got just such a like, oh, it's so, my life is so heavy. And yet the song is just so fun to listen and sing along to. I, w- I went back to the my collection and I found some of the, you know, the collections of the outtakes and I played them this morning. And it isn't till after take 13 <laughs> <laughs> that the electric piano starts to come forward. Right. The- there but the tone setting isn't there and it's that jaunty tone setting that gives you the tension in the song that puts it for you know puts it over the top it's also really interesting that the song has no chorus Mm -hmm. and Dylan doesn't always do a chorus that song I've been in Mississippi too long yeah I think there's like, he says that only twice in the whole song. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And there's albums. There are, I'm sorry, there's lines. When you're lost in the rain in Juarez and it's Easter time too, and your gravity fails, negativity don't pull you through. It is such a loaded verse. And kind of, if you're in a feeling of despair, that kind of sums you up. Your gravity's failed and negativity doesn't pull you through. You know, and then later on, he says, I don't have the strength to get up and take another shot. And my best friend, the doctor, won't even tell me what it is I've got. So at that point in my life, I am hoping that I will get to make rock and roll high school. I'm hoping that I will that, you know, it will be it'll work out for me. And, you know, I'd be sitting at home on a Saturday night listening to music because I had no life. (laughs) (laughs) No, and these words just spoke out to me. I started out on Burgundy, but soon hit the harder stuff. Everybody said they're right behind me when the game got rough. Again, this person is so beat down Mm -hmm. that there is no way to ease his pain. Now, Dylan, from what I've read, said it's about a painter you know, whose travels back and forth to Juarez, supposedly. And there's a lot of cross-references to um, Rambeau and other people in it and Desolation Angels. The last line of the song, I'm going back to New York City. I do believe I've had enough. Mm-hmm. Kind of summed up. Here I've been out in Los Angeles killing myself all those years. Mm-hmm. And I to think, Maybe this isn't going to work out. So the song truly spoke to my state of mind at the time. And, um, they, you know, there's references to Arthur Rambeau's Bohemian Life, Desolation Angels by Kerouac, Under the Volcano. I mean, I did a, went back and did a lot of research on this kind of stuff. Um, he recorded it. This is amazing. He recorded it the same day. So he, on this one day, he recorded just like Tom Thumb's Blues, Ballad of a Thin Man, 
Highway 61 revisited and gained approximately all on one day. And according to the notes I found, he did the most takes on Tom Thumb Blues. He did 16 takes. Which is, up for him, that's a lot. He oh, generally that, would yeah. bail after all. He would just get sick of it and move on. But he yeah, That's why when they were doing like a Rolling Stone and nobody, they hadn't even gotten to play it all the way through by take six or seven, everyone was hoping this is a great song. We got to get it yeah. <laughs> before he gets bored. And the one that we have is take eight. But um, it's a, someone wrote, it's a gorgeous evocation of muddied consciousness. <laughs> you know, um, Paul Williams, the rock critic who started Crawdaddy magazine. Love Paul Williams' books. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you got Bloomfield on guitar. Al Cooper, on, he's the one who plays that thing that sounds like um, uh, it's a horn or something. That's that tinkly... That's that piano sounding thing that's so jaunty in its tone setting. Oh, so it's like a great juke joint that you've entered, you know. And the great Paul Griffin is on piano, and his great contribution on piano, one of the ones I love, is on "Sooner or Later, One of Us Must Know." That's his incredible guitar uh, piano playing. Harvey Brooks on bass and Bobby Gregg on drums. It was actually two drummers. Sam Lay from Butterfield started the session, and then uh, he stepped out, and Bobby Gregg finished it. You know, that's for the total insider knowledge of it. <laughs> One of the things I noticed when listening to the alternate takes, like you were just talking about, is like the language of this song is pretty tight. Like it's it doesn't change that much from version to version. I think he kind of had he knew what he he knew what he wanted. And he kept yeah. it. I mean, it was the, the tune, except for one change was where I noticed that there's earlier versions where at the, in the final verse where he says, uh, everybody stand behind me when the game got rough. The initial line is it was all a laugh. There was nobody there even to call my bluff. And then when you get to the later versions, he changes it to, but the joke was on me. And I realized like he's learning even in these small increments, like how to find a better phrase. Yeah. You know, the joke on me is just a more powerful turn of phrase than it was all a laugh. It was all a laugh as a kind of, okay, it's, it's, it's all, it's all right. It's could maybe could be benign a little, but the joke being on you is, you know, it invokes that feeling of like, oh man, like this, you know, and it's, it's like, yeah, he's learning just that one line change does so much. And he's, and that's where he's tightening it up and he's making it like a million times better. Did you also notice how the how he would drop certain words and or add one word in between to find the inner life of the song, mm-hmm. you know, to feel the rhythm of his vocal, and I mean that in a very subtle way, you know, to match the intention of the lyric. And as you're listening and you know the song as well as we do, it seems wrong all of a sudden. Oh, he, and then you, next time you hear it, he would have added the word the. Mm-hmm. Make something track better. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you listen to um, uh, more blood, more tracks, and more tracks, that, that box set, mm-hmm. it's the songs are all worked out, but his exploration of them is particularly interesting. Whereas on this box of, you know, that period of time when he did three magnificent records, they're really being figured out. 
you know, he's writing them as he's playing them. I noticed when other people have covered this song, like when they get to the line about, uh, I get to get up and take another shot and my best friend, my doctor, often people will sing and my best friend, the doctor. Yeah. And he always sings my doctor, which again is, it doesn't seem like that big of a change, but you think about it. No, it is because the doctor is a little removed. It's a little distance, but my doctor is like, Oh, he's talking about his personal doctor. And it just, again, it evokes something very different than just calling it the doctor. This this sort of person that we're talking about at full of despair is decidedly different from the one he recorded live Mm -hmm. months later, which is full of anguish. You know, the live version that's available is very anguished and howling and so forth. Um, I also like Neil Young's version. Because, again, Neil, my daughters used to call uh, Neil Young the sad man. (laughs) (laughs) And then when they saw live stuff of him, they called him the scary, sweaty guy. Fair, <laughs> you know, sure. I truly love the, I think it's the 30th or 4th anniversary concert. The 30th of, anniversary concert, yep. yep. Blew all of them. I played, I have it in three different formats. Um, I was I, there that night. Were you? I was. I was at that show, yep. And Neil's, co- and Neil's cover of that is the first song performed after the infamous Sinead O'Connor getting booed off stage bit. Wow. He comes out right after that and tears into uh his songs and it you know it it changed the mood of the the it practically yeah. got the mood of the night back on track because it's Neil Young tearing yeah. into these songs. So, yeah. You know, but, every year on my birthday I watch the uh, the My Back Pages. Oh, the six of them together. Yeah. Oh man. As life goes on there's less and less people you know from mm-hmm. that artists and so forth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so and live wise, uh, well, okay, before I get to the live performance, there's something I always like to notice this because again, this is what the show is, is sort of like searching out every weird meaning I, I care to look for in Bob's decision making. But this song was put on Greatest Hits Volume Two, which came out in 1971. Now, uh-huh. this song was never a hit sing. It was never a single. It was never put out as a single. It was certainly not a hit by any record company parlance but the fact that it's on greatest hits volume two that to me is always like oh i think bob just likes this one because why is it on there there's there's no good reason for it to be on there other than i think bob himself is like i just like that one and i want to give it kind of a a, a, you know a fresh airing so put it on greatest hits volume two because it's just like it's like okay why is that on there but okay it's because he likes it well you should because it's a great song we can kind of sum up Bob Dylan is. Everyone's turning right, he turns left. Right. <laughs> Eric Garcia told me that um, when they did and Dylan recorded together and did those live cuts, mm-hmm. okay, um, they made a, they had mixed, they made some choices of what they thought should be on the album. And Bob came to their place and they were going to play them on the, you know, big you know, mix thing. And he said, no, no, no. And they played it on a boom box. And he basically changed about half of it. And Jerry says, I wish the other, you know, he says, 
he said, I'm not the one to talk about Bob, but you know, there was a better version. <laughs> they did a lot of, you know, the dead really pushed him into performing a lot of obscure songs that he wasn't doing. And uh, I think they gave him that space to be more comfortable. And yeah, I, you know, there's tons of bootlegs out there of like, wow, look at these obscure songs he's doing and, yeah. or, or weird covers, you know, and yet, you know, the record, the, the resulting record was a little like, Oh, okay. These are kind of the songs you'd expect to hear from a, a Dylan and the Dead collaboration, yeah. except for a couple of instances. There's an album called The Dead Do Dylan, which has a good selection. Mm-hmm. But for you real fans, if I happen to think that Jerry Garcia's version of Senor uh, on one of his solo live things is really, really... Senor, again, the, is the figure of death. Mm-hmm. You know, and... I think that he does it extremely well. And um, I also love the fact that in the next to the last concert that the dead did, and it was broadcast live, or the last one, I forget which it was, the final song was Knocking on Heaven's Door. Mm -hmm. Wow. And they put up the pictures of everyone who was gone from the dead, and the last picture was Garcia. Oh, my goodness. So it was a really... Fitting ending. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, speaking of covers of this song, there is a famous one by Nina Simone, and it's really hypnotizing. I listened to it again before this record, I, and like write this down. <laughs> I, yeah, oh man, and I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of taking a classic song and then just slowing it down and making it a ballad. That's kind of a thing that a lot of singers do. But hers is hypnotic. The way, and part of it is her voice. Her voice is obviously it's Nina Simone, but there's, you just would not imagine like Nina Simone covering just like Tom Thumbs blues, like that, that silky smooth bluesy voice singing these sort of phantasmagorical lines, but yet it works. And it's, it's absolutely, um, fantastic. It's really, um, they, it was used in a movie a couple of years ago. Um, there was a Gene Seberg biopic with, uh, yeah. it's used at the end of that. Uh, at the, at the end of where Kristen Stewart in her final scene as Gene Seberg, they use it in there, but it's absolutely, um, a fantastic cover of it. You can find it on YouTube, but live wise, this has been done 243 times. The first time ever was when you were there, Alan. That oh. the first ever live performance of Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you hear, do you hear that? Someone's playing the theme from the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'll drop that in. Uh, so, but he's done it 243 times between 65 and 2014. So not a lot. It's, you know, over the course of 50 years of performing, that is not a lot of times. And that's a shame because I think, I think this is an absolutely terrific song. I never tire of it every time I listen to it and I hear that piano come in. It's I know. Just, oh my God. <laughs> this is so fun to listen to. It's so beautifully mixed, you know. Um, another Dylan song that people cover. And I think that they get a lot out of the song is Every Grain of Sand. Oh, yes. One of the great. Uh, There are a lot of singers who have a gospel root feel to them. And when they when they cover it, it's uh, it really, you know, it brings out the feeling of that song in a lot of different ways. Have you heard the version that Bob does on Shadow Kingdom? Because he does this on Shadow Kingdom. Shadow Kingdom. Fantastic. I love it. I mean, I love that version. It's completely different. It doesn't have that electric piano, and yet was, it works. When was Shadow Kingdom recorded? Twenty twenty one, I think. I don't exactly know. It's it's shrouded <laughs> in mystery, as is typical for Bob. But 
something like that. How come his voice is so good on it? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's he went into the studio and did it, and then made that weird ass movie sort of slash performance piece that he did. But I, I really, I, part of it is I love the song, but just I love the that he changes the arrangement and he gives yeah. it this sort of you know again he manages to he removes my favorite part of the song, which is the electric piano sound transforms it into its own separate thing which i love just as much this kind of sway that da, 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 and it's it's fantastic i love you know sometimes i'll go see the concert and go well that version didn't work for me but you know but i love that he tries anything but on this one almost i mean it, there's so much more to hear in the song so the one darkness at the edge of noon carols even the silver that one mm-hmm. the leaves those silences between the lines you know and um it just so the songs seemed to come alive again and i thought was this recorded in an alternate universe 30 years ago <laughs> I, you never know quite possibly i meant to ask you have you continued to see him over the decades Live? oh yeah a bunch of times okay okay good when was the last time you saw him Ooh. I'm going to say five or six years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I well, think he's going to be coming around again. He's on the Rough and Rowdy uh, Ways tour going, you know, well, that's stretching well, all the way till next year. Whenever that was, I saw that tour. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw him with Tom Petty over the years. I oh, saw man. him with, uh, with the dead. I saw the tour with the band in 74. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And... I saw him at Forest Hills. I saw him, you know, a lot. Oh, during that time, he did those strange rearrangements, and he had kind of a horn band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Late seventies, yeah. yeah. And a friend of mine played in the band. Uh, Andy Stein is a saxophone player. Played. Oh with wow! Him. Oh my goodness! And it was around that time that he was making Ronaldo and Clara and all that. Right. Stuff, you know? Right. Did you have you seen Ronaldo? I assume you've seen it, right, Ronaldo and Claire? I actually saw it in a screening room. I saw a rough cut that so was even longer. <laughs> How did you get to see a rough cut of Ronaldo and Clara? Mine was in the band. Oh, that's then, how you did. Okay, it was through him. Okay, okay. Andy, Andy is was in Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen. Okay, and Commander Cody and Lost Planet Airmen are in rock are in. Hollywood Boulevard, my first movie that I co-directed with Joe Dante, mm-hmm. Trucking and Fucking, and then Andy did the sound, the score to it, and so we stayed friends. And he said, "Oh, I'm playing with Dylan. I'm in town." And then we he had rehearsed, and then he says, uh, "You know, we're supposed to go to dinner." And I he says, "Look, I've heard we were invited to the screening. When the boss says come to the screening, you go to the screening." I said, "Yeah, we'll have dinner afterwards. How long could it be?" <laughs> the joke was on you <laughs> in that case. Yeah, there was nobody even there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of, I love Joker Man. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I feel like that should have been the pull quote on the poster. With how long could it be? Alan Arkish, Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, <laughs> that actually uh, leads perfectly to what I typically do when we get to the end of the show, because look, I could keep talking to you all night and I don't want to use up any more of your time talking about this. I really appreciate you doing the show, but I always do an exit question, 
where I have a question that I ask uh, every guest. And if it's a new guest, I ask them you know, the same question. But then if it's somebody that's been on before, I rotate it through. And there's a question that I have that I don't get to ask that much, but I it's perfect for you. And that exit question is this. Bob comes to you, Alan, right? And he says, I want you to come over to the house, <laughs> drive up to Malibu, my giant onion domed house, and we're going to watch a movie. But Ooh. you, you get to pick the movie, Alan. And so what movie would you take with you to show Bob? And you can approach it, as I explain to people, from any angle that you choose. You could decide if this would be a movie I think Bob would like. You could be, this is a movie I like. This would be a movie, I think, but you know, like you, you can come at it from any angle that you choose. If Bob well, gave you that instructions, what, what would it be? I know it's a huge question, especially someone with your background in film, but. Comes to mind. Uh, at first I was thinking of a movie by Ozu, the Japanese director. Okay. Um, but then I thought, you know, something by Mizuguchi, Ugetsu Monogatari which is a movie about ghosts and how, and a life that goes awry and so forth. So it, you're not going to be disappointed. It's one of the greatest Japanese movies of all time. Um, and it just is a movie that continues to unfold and give information. But if I want to be greedy and spend as much time as I could with Bob, mm-hmm. I might try Seven Samurai because that's like three hours. Three hours, right. (laughs) And, you know, a cosmic double bill. Have you ever heard of A Matter of Life and Death? Oh, I have it. I love it. Uh, It's an awesome movie. Yes. Isn't that a great movie to see with Dylan? Oh, God. Imagine. That's one of those things where I'm like, you know, in answer to my own question, I'm like, would I try and like outflank him and try and bring him something I don't think he's seen, but he's seen so many he's a big movie guy, so he's probably seen lots of stuff I wouldn't imagine that he has seen. Okay, can I humble brag? Of course! Okay, so in the 70s (laughs) in the same period I was living in uh, Hollywood and with a group of friends, we all had 16 millimeter projectors because we all had access to a really, really big collection of 16 millimeter movies. Okay. And Garcia had invited me up to his to visit him. And I thought it'd be really fun to bring a movie and a projector, you know, you know, just to hang out. And so I brought the Howard Hawks movie, Only Angels Have Wings. Okay. Cary Grant. Just because I love the movie. And we got along great. And so whenever they were in town, I would bring a projector to the hotel and show them something that I made or whatever it was. But then they were doing. Terrapin Station and the and the Grateful Dead movie here. So they're here for a while. So he would come over with the roadies about once a week and we'd have a movie night. Okay, so here's a double bill. <laughs> we watched together. Okay. Do you know the movie Hell's a Poppin'? Yes. The one that constantly breaks the third wall and, you know, the fourth wall. It's kind of an insane movie based on a Broadway review. Double Bill, Hell's a Poppin', and Fellini's Eight and a Half. <laughs> and I will leave you with that to contemplate, watching that with Garcia and the roadies. What? Smoke Grateful Dead Weed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Hell's a Poppin', so I, can't, I mean, I've heard of it, but 
I can't even wrap my head around that. Get it on Amazon. Okay. And just so to connect, let's tie all the pieces together. Get Crazy was originally called Hell's a Rockin'. Oh. And Hell's a Rockin's (laughs) ace and insanity was the inspiration for Get Crazy. Okay. Oh, man. (laughs) I'm kind of. I'm sort of sorry now. It wasn't called that. That's a fantastic yeah. title. Hell's a rockin'. It's it's perfect. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't. Yeah. And the original, the earlier version was a. I don't want to say this one. It was as when it was closer to reality and it was more about our life experiences. It it was a, a different script and somewhat better script. So gotcha, gotcha. So well, yeah. Everybody, if you haven't seen Get Crazy, check it out. If you haven't seen any of, of Alan's movies, please go check them out and. Alan, again, I, I'm just so honored that I would get to talk to you. Again, I've been seeing your movies for a long time, and I loved our episode of Fade Out Together where we got to talk about Sidney Lumet. And once I then discovered – I mean, I knew I could guess that you were a Dylan fan from, again, the stuff in Get Crazy and the stuff in Rock and Roll High School. But then when you started doing the commentaries on Trailers from Hell on Bob's movies, I was like – and you, you're showing all the records. I'm like, oh, man, I've got to talk to Alan about Bob Dylan. So uh, I consider it my responsibility – to to do, I mean, I did the last waltz one, and I did one uh, the Iggy Pop, the one about Iggy and the Stooges mm-hmm. that came out, you know, uh, Gimme Danger and the mm-hmm. Underground movie. So I, that's my responsibility on that. On that oh. They're so fun. They're so fun those commentaries, and I said highly recommend everybody check them out. So again, Alan, uh, thank you once again, man. I, I just I, I so appreciate that I get a chance to talk to you, and this was so fun. So thank you really so much for doing this. Okay, thank you. So, um, of course, everybody, if you want to find the show over on Twitter, just go to pod underscore Dylan. You can find it over in Blue Sky. And if you want to subscribe to Pod Dylan and support the show, I'd really appreciate it. Just go to fmpods.com. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. I know you don't believe in the magic anymore. You think it's all the same from backstage. Well, tonight, tonight you're going to witness a Max Wolf miracle. Auden's return to the Saturn. Auden? Max, no one's seen Auden in six years. He hasn't even been out of his apartment. He's not coming here tonight, Max. How can he refuse? Max Wolf is calling him from his deathbed. Hello? Auden? Who? Auden, metaphysical folk singer. I can't believe it. You know, that's the first time I ever had. Invented the 70s. Dropped by six record companies. That was the first concert I ever went to. Antisocial recluse. That's you? Oh, yeah, I... 